Rescue Art Foundation's Critical Distance podcast series, produced as a part of Meeting Artists' Needs, a professional development program for artists of all ages and backgrounds. QArt Foundation's Meeting Artists' Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. You are listening to Conversation 5, The Measuring Stick, from Make Some Place, conversations about people, practice, and creative placemaking. This conversation was recorded live at QArt Foundation. I'm really thrilled that we have two phenomenal guest speakers this evening. Uh, Jamie Han from Arcus America, she's the research director. Google Tommy from Help by Design. Uh, and I'm gonna, they're going to both present here in just a few minutes. But I want to just open up and open up this session tonight by giving you a little bit of context for why we're here. And just by a quick show of hands, has anybody else been to, so this is our fifth out of five workshops that we're hosting around creative placemaking under this Make Some Place uh, program that we put together. Has anybody else been to any of the other workshops? Cool. The nice thing is, is you miss something, but that's okay because tonight will stand on its own. Um, so just a quick recap of where we come from and where and how it got to where we are tonight. So this whole series has been about creative placemaking. What is creative placemaking? That was what we covered in the first session. The second session was all about um, how to create outdoor art or adapting to your place, which actually where the heading was. But what that meant was. Great, great placemaking, kind of an idea of what that is, but like if I want to create an art project in a park or in a public plaza, how do I do that? Uh, how do I think outside the box? How do I think outside the gallery and other conventional spaces to create art? So that was our second workshop. The third was all about partnerships. And I think what's really key about creative placemaking, and I said this before in the series, is if you're doing it on your own, you might want to rethink how you're thinking about your work. Because creative placemaking at its finest is where we're working together and are forming partnerships to accomplish more and have a stronger social impact. Last week we talked about funding, which was really great. Um, and that was all about funding opportunities that exist, really highlighting the work that Art Place America is doing. And I won't take any of Jamie's thunder on, on Art Place is fantastic. Really, really changing the game for a lot of artists. And then this week we're bringing it all together with program evaluation and great. Like, I know I create art, but to what end am I creating art? What is the impact I'm having? What is the impact I'm trying to have? And how do I measure that? So it's uh, it's refreshing to see so many of you here to talk about metrics and program evaluation. Maybe that's where we're going tonight. That's where we're going. Um, I do want to, so this is a very formal um, conversation this evening. Please, we welcome you to get up, get more wine, use the restroom throughout the course of the night. We realize some people might be coming late, so we'll move chairs around and make sure everybody gets in. Um, and we want to make sure that you feel like there's a lot of space for conversation and questions. So if you have questions that arise throughout the night, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll try to touch on this then. And if not, we'll certainly come back around to it. So I would just like to open up the evening asking, why are you here? What did you read about the description, and what are you hoping that, that intrigues you, and what are you hoping to get out of tonight? And I think that will help give us some valuable information about kind of where we can take this conversation, and then we'll get back to Sandy and Google. But I'd love to just, anybody, um, feel free to raise your hand, and we'll go around and just figure out what you're, what you're here for and what information you hope to leave with. Awesome. 
And you did a fantastic thing with Remnant to ask, which is um, the first time you speak, if you don't mind just letting us know your name and the, the art you practice or kind of your, your background and what ties you into this conversation about your case. Thank you. Anybody else? Program evaluation. What does it make you think of when you, when you read those words or read those uh, my name is Miriam Sosser. I'm a social artist. I do work that's sometimes like specific, sometimes not. Often use a set, not always. Um, the reason I'm interested in this, um, out of the series of five so far, I went to one of them, and then this one I really had to go to. I'm really interested in the whole evaluation issue because I feel like you generally don't. Or even if you do it because an artist, you don't really have an evaluation unless somebody writes a book for you. So, so I think particularly with art that's in a public space or publicly funded, it's important to understand uh, how it's been received, which is not the be-all end-all of the work, but it's an important aspect, and I feel like it's just under-discussed. Under okay, thank you. Yes, all right. <laughs>
uh, arts within community to help build more resilient and interconnected communities in cities like New York that are constantly under great stress and change. Um, and, you know, in running an organization, being able to kind of talk about what we do, how we do it, why we do it is always uh, valuable and, and challenging. Um, and wanting to own the power to tell our story for ourselves and then want to be part of a conversation where we're kind of trying to define this for ourselves and not having it imposed on us. Yes. Great. Yes. I am Joanne and uh, filmmaker and photographer and uh, social activist. Um, I've been working in documentaries, uh, films, uh, mostly social and political documentaries, on guests and stuff like that. And so I've been working on a long term project, a photography project uh, that takes place here in New York um, for, since like 1977. And it's um, right now, it's in the formation of being book and installation. And uh, so I've been coming to this series, just my first installation project.
for me, the sort of journey into sort of what is research, how is Art Place going about doing its research, and what, what are the things that we can actually help both serving our larger mission as well as serving the people that are doing this work. Um, it was, for me, this process of sort of getting in the weeds and understanding some of the jargon and some of the language that gets used around research and evaluation holding sort of respect for that technical ability and those tools and those that training that people who are technically trained have, but then also realizing that some of it is just common sense, some of it is just good project management, some of it is just strategic ways of working. And so, um, so, so for me, I, hopefully that'll come out in a little bit of what I share with you today. Um, my work, uh, how many of you know what our place is? Or were, who was here at Javier's last week? Was anybody? Okay, so you guys heard Javier talk last week. Um, and so I would say most people think of Art Place as a funder, first and foremost. We're primarily known as being a funder. Um, so I'm going to walk you through a little bit about sort of what else we do and then get into the sort of overarching 30,000 foot view of sort of why, what we're doing within research strategies and why we're doing it that way. And then I think we'll bring it down, Ripple will bring into some specific uh, projects and examples of research. So. Um, with that. any questions before I get started. Okay. Um, quick big picture overview. We are a 10-year collaboration. We are 16 foundations, eight federal agencies, and six financial institutions that came together in 2011 um, to our, position arts and culture as a core sector of community planning and development. So if you hear that sort of to position arts and culture as, there's a bit of advocacy in there. Um, where when we say we're a 10-year collaboration, we are going away in 2020. Um, and also when you see all, you know, 16 foundations, eight federal agencies, six finance, we're also eight people. Um, we're eight staff people working um, sort of furiously towards this 2020 deadline um, on that mission of positioning arts and culture as a core sector of community planning and development. Uh, what? What, was, what was the to of the mission? Yeah. To position arts and culture as a core sector of community planning and development for the social, physical, and economic benefit of communities. Is this, I, I drop off the second half, that's actually the most crucial half. Um, but in terms of the, um, the sort of structure and architecture, how we're um, thinking about that positioning and that learning, um, I, that's why I emphasize the first half. Um, we are, these are sort of our four lines of work. Um, as I said, we're most known for our grant making. So the top left, National Creative Placemaking Fund. Um, that's, the, that's the grant program that we get 1,300 applications a year for. We fund anyone. We fund artists, we fund arts organizations, we fund community development organizations, we fund government entities. There's sort of no restrictions in terms of who and how we fund. Um, but we can, with our funding, with the sort of demand for this kind of work right now, we fund about three or four percent of what comes into us. Um, we spend about $10 million a year. We've funded to date um, about 60, I think it's $67 million since 2011, um, and 228 projects across the country. Um, in 2014, we added a line of work called the Community Development Investments. It's another way of making grants, uh, but it is to six organizations for three years. They each get a million dollars a year, and it's community development organizations that have never worked with artists before, or arts organizations. It's, it's organizations that have no history. They, they have a history of working towards revitalizing their community, working with their community members on community development goals, but that actually wanted to go on this journey of understanding how to begin to work with artists and arts organizations to better achieve those goals. And so that's a line of work where we are, you know, in some senses it's a demonstration project. There are six demonstration projects. They're in wildly different contexts and different types of organizations. 
Um, and we have a research uh, portion sort of for those three years and longer where we're actually capturing the learnings, what happens when this type of partnership to the point of partnerships being a critical part of this work. What do those partnerships look like? What does the organization have to do to change to begin to work in this way? What sort of languages do they need to learn? What are the, what are the barriers to the collaborations that are happening? Is the work happening better? Is it happening slower? Is it, you know, we're actually going on this journey with these organizations to understand um, the qualitative and quantitative difference when there's artistic strategies and artistic processes applied to community development work with those anchor institutions. Um, the research line of work and the field building line of work were both sort of added on in 2014. I keep making reference to this date. We had a change of leadership and uh, that's when I came on as one of five new staff members. Um, and that's when Art Place realized, you know, what can we be doing? We are this hybrid entity. We are not one philanthropy that sort of does fund, you know, funds what it wants to fund. We're 16 philanthropies. Sometimes have competing missions. Sometimes have, what are we all in this together for? What can we do that's a little bit different since we are a hybrid organization? So the explicit mandate to actually do some knowledge capture and knowledge building and do some field building sort of with an eye towards the fact that we're going to go away. So what happens in 2020 when there's no longer the carrot of funders trying to incentivize this kind of work. How can we actually create the connections and the networks and the support structures uh, for people to continue to do this work? Um, just to sort of set some definitions, what we mean when we say creative placemaking um, is projects in which arts and culture play an intentional and integrated role in place-based planning and development that is human-centric, comprehensive, and locally informed. Um, and then just to be precise about what we mean by community, because that's something that a lot of people trip up on. Um, the place part of Art Place um, is that we're talking about a community defined by geography. So if you're working in a place, and when you, if you go through our application process, we, we essentially say draw a circle on a map and tell us about everybody and everything in that place. And that's actually a really, it's, in some ways it's subtle, in some ways it's not subtle, but it's not, so people aren't working only for a certain part of that community, or so only certain people benefit, but not others. It's actually sort of forcing some, um, some due diligence on both the people doing the work and also on sort of an awareness of who all is being impacted by this work. So this connects back to the, uh, the research and impact questions later. Um, sort of hard to see. Um, one just sort of common misperception is that we're talking about making places more creative. So more arts, more arts programming, more artists, more artworks. Um, we're actually talking about making places creatively. Um, so more arts is not an outcome that we're looking for in any work that our place is supporting. Um, and, and so cr the creative part of creative placemaking, it's an adverb, um, not adjective. Um, something that's important, has been important for me to, to really attend to and talk about in the research work, partially, so I, I worked at the NEA, at the National Endowment for the Arts on the Our Town grant program before arriving at, um, it's the only thing that qualified me to do this job at our place, which was that I sort of had the front row seat to the rolling out of the term creative placemaking at the NEA and all that came with it, which was good and bad. Um, a lot of people sort of sort of seeing themselves in this work but not liking the framing or sort of saying, well, I do studio work, I don't do that kind of work, does that mean I'm never going to get funded again? So, I mean, so there was a lot of angst uh, both in the art sector and in sort of articulating what it was that was going on when the NEA created um, that framing and sort of did that initial commission of a white paper uh, to talk about this notion of creative placemaking. But um, the reality is it was trying to sort of create an umbrella for a lot of work that had been happening for a lot, for a really long time. 
Um, and so these are just some of the sort of frames and ways in that a lot of other artists and design professionals had been sort of talking or thinking about their work. There's probably 20 more. Um, this is certainly not comprehensive, but as we go about, I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of reframed mission in 2014 about positioning arts and culture as a core sector of community planning and development was really relevant because um, it's no longer about the word creative placemaking, it's about the idea that artists are doing something for the benefit of their communities um, and they're working in partnership on some form of community impacts. Um, and so, so when, when we go into the research work, I'm actually not looking for history of creative placemaking or people that are calling it that, but I'm looking for people that are working at sort of these intersections. Um, and often, they're people that call themselves these types of artists. Um, again, I, I'm, I feel like I'm taking too long on the basic stuff, but uh, when you come into us for an application, what, again, what we consider to be creative placemaking work, uh, we sort of ask you to go through these four questions, and I bring them up today because it, it, it helps me get to the idea of intentionality, um, and sort of starting with a sort of intention and a problem-solving uh, mindset uh, for artistic practice. Um, so, as I mentioned before, we actually ask you to define a community, what is the place in which you're doing this work? Show us and tell us everything about who's there. Then we say, what is the desired community change? So not only do you have to understand that there's a desired community change, but it has to be desired by the community. It's not something that you've decided as an artist or some organizations decided this community needs. Um, somebody who's a mentor to me, Maria Rosario Jackson, often says, watch your pronouns. It's not to a community or for a community, but with a community. So how are artists working with a community to help even articulate what that desire changes? Um, the third piece then is sort of proposing something. What's the intervention? What's the activity? What's the strategy that will help achieve that change, help bring about that, um, whether it's problem solving or capturing momentum, but what is, that, what is that artistic activity? It still has to be a creative something at its core. Um, and then four, the million dollar question for today's conversation is, how will you know that that change is happening? So again, it's not saying, what does your project valuation look like? Um, but I often say, to simplify it even further, how will you know when to stop? Did you do what you set out to do? Did the activity that you proposed achieve the things that you said you desired in number two at the scale that you identified in number one? So it's actually, this, and these are literally in our application, uh, part of the question. So we're sort of, from the beginning, trying to get away from, as I said, the sort of uh, research and evaluation language and jargon and asking people to really think critically. You're gonna know better than we are, certainly, what that change looks like in your community and what you're trying to achieve. And so we're trying to give that sort of um, role back to the, the project managers, the artists, the people doing this work, and not have it be something that some philanthropy tells you what to measure and how to measure it. Um, I would say another thing that comes with this is that every single creative placemaking project could have a very different outcome or can be seeking to do something very different, and that's okay. Uh, there's no one thing that they're all doing. I think that's something that, and there's no one set of outcomes or one set of indicators that uh, creative placemaking should be aiming for. And I think that's, that's, that is often assumed because we've got all of these foundations and all of these people coming together to fund something. There's still a lot of room for difference, uh, depending, I mean, especially when work is inherently contextual um, and place-based, then it's going to have different outcomes. Um, so with that in mind, the, I'll pause and see if anybody has any questions to this point. Yeah. Say again. 
The National Endowment for the Arts. National, National Endowment for the Arts. It's the it's the federal agency uh, that that supports uh, public. It's the public funding for arts in this country. That and then what is dialogue for? Um, it is something that I believe comes out of theater. Anybody else can if anybody else can correct me. Um, I don't know a ton about it, but it is something where it has to do with sort of performative, um, iterative. Uh, dialogue work uh, where community members and theater performers are sort of reenacting and acting out things. Um, I have a question. A lot of times um, when I've been in situations where I've been community-based uh, projects, the outcomes are um, totally different really than what, or maybe like if I try to write out what all these different things, how we know what change, change is happening, a lot of times things happen that are more spontaneous than that. So how does that get accounted for in proposals? Because, I mean, there's so much happens so that, I didn't close the loop and I'll get into it more, but on this issue of intentionality, I mean, we often talk about that there's, there's, there's impacts and outcomes that you're seeking to achieve, and then there's other effects that happen. And other effects that happen can be good and can be bad. And I think it's, I mean, adverse, unintended consequences of work that we don't know until long after it happens, it's really important to acknowledge and capture all of them. But, you know, in terms of program evaluation, I, I often see, and maybe you can speak to this better, but like intended outcomes and what's the term for unintended outcomes uh, or happy, spontaneous, like wonderful things that happen alongside, capturing all of them is important if you're doing an evaluation. But in terms of what, what I'm talking about is sort of before you start the work, setting up what your goals are. I mean, call them outcomes, call them goals. Um, but, but actually knowing what you're aiming for, you can't actually do a rigorous analysis unless you intended to aim for something. And that sort of, that's something that I think is what sets apart some, let's say, there's, a, there's an artist named Michael Rode who runs the Center for Performance and Civic Practice who talks about the difference between social practice and civic practice art. Um, and again, not to get into the weeds on, so everybody will have different definitions of that, but how often um, social practice art is about the, the, the community as a audience or as a participant, but civic practice art is co-design. Um, and so the idea of that co-design and the articulation of outcomes that everyone seeks to achieve is very different than an artist having an idea that they want to do with the community. Um, so uh, to get into the research work, we um, this is a book uh, sort of hot in the innovation sphere about you know where innovation happens. Um, but it, I actually read it after we sort of came up with our research design for the next couple of years, and it just it captured an, an important point for me, uh, which you see in this sentence that the, that when you step into an intersection of fields, disciplines, or cultures, you can combine existing concepts into a large number of extraordinary ideas. Once there, you have the opportunity to innovate as never before, creating the Medici effect. And that's referencing the, the Italian, you know, Florence Italianate period where engineers and scientists and artists, and you know, through the Medici's um, support, were, you know, life flourished, culture flourished. Um, but the idea is that you actually, if you get out of the barriers and take off the blinders of sort of what you know and what you think you know, and sort of in particular related to disciplines um, and how we're trained and trained to think, that if you start taking concepts from one field and bring them into another, you're gonna you're gonna enter into exciting territory. Um, so 
With that in mind, and with this idea that our mission is about positioning arts and culture relative to community planning and development, we realize that community planning and development is a big umbrella. It's a lot of things. There's a lot of people who work in the field of community development or in community planning. Um, and so we sort of realized that we needed to break it down. And we needed to break it down in a way that sort of helped to understand who are the, what are the other sectors that care about community planning and development? What are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? Um, what are the things that actually matter in terms of systems and infrastructure in a community? And who are the actors that contribute towards those changes, those systems? So on the left side, you'll see um, just the different sectors of community planning and development. So I don't know if you can read it, but ag and food, economic development, education and youth, energy and environment, health, housing, immigration, public safety, transportation and workforce development. It's not comprehensive, it's not capturing everything. You could debate, you know, this was done after sort of an informal review of local governments, philanthropy, community development organizations, the way others who take up multiple um, areas of focus organize themselves. Um, and then across the top is, uh, as I said, the different actors. So civic, social, and faith-based entities that are working in these different sectors, government, nonprofit, philanthropic, and commercial. Um, this is an organizing framework that, as I said, it's not rocket science. We're not actually prescribing how the world should be. We're sort of just saying this is loosely how the world is. And then this becomes a map of both the audiences and the worlds that we're seeking to influence as art place, and also an organizing framework to, to support the practitioners who are doing this work to start to sort of say, oh, I'm doing, I'm working with a government partner on a health-related thing, or I'm working on it with a nonprofit partner on a public safety-related thing. So we actually ask applicants to sort of tag themselves in terms of what are some of the goals and what are some of the partners. So you can use it in a lot of different ways, but I have really run with it in our research strategies, which is why I bring it up here, in terms of that point that creative placemaking can be a lot of things. It can be, it can be very different. It can manifest with different outcomes in different communities. Um, part of, you know, one of my experiences being at the National Endowment for the Arts was that that muddiness, that it was all of those things, wasn't helping us make any cases or get any further in actually understanding the outcomes. So by breaking things down and doing sort of discrete segmented studies about the role of the arts relative to each of these sectors has been our way into actually getting to the, getting to the details, getting to the nuance, getting to the understanding of the role that artists and arts and culture can play in public safety, in housing, in immigration, et cetera. Um, so for each of these, so for each of these horizontal sectors, um, we're going about doing a process. Sorry, the yellow is hard to see. Um, I call this our translating outcomes research, where we're really trying to get into the head and understand that other field. So I'm going to use the public uh, public safety example here today, because um, that's one of the ones that we've completed, uh, where we. First step is conducting a field scan. What's happening in the world of public safety right now? Big important topic in our country. Um, what are the things that they measure? What are the things that they care about? What are the challenges and barriers to success? Whether you're talking about law enforcement, whether you're talking about community citizen um, protection organizations, whether you're talking about community developers, where you're talking about artists. What are sort of all of the things that matter to that field? And what is the larger history of the relationship of arts and culture to that field? I'm actually going to, I should speed up. That's this one. <laughs> um, what we do in that field scan is we really start to understand sort of um, how, how artists have historically done things that connect up to those things that that field cares about. So in public safety, one of the findings within this field scan was 
what you see here, that the arts are promoting empathy and understanding. That's something that the, the safety field understands as connecting up to their work. Providing viable career opportunities, advancing the quality of place, supporting well-being, influencing law and policy. These are all things that artists are sort of actively doing. Didn't call it creative placemaking, didn't start in 2010 when creative placemaking became a thing, but really looking at the longer history of artists doing this work. Um, following on the field scan, we actually work with a partner in that other field. So for public safety, we selected um, some partners at Local Initiative Support Corporation and their community safety program. They have a long history of training um, around both law enforcement, legitimacy training, but also working with really progressive, um, progressive sort of community collaborations around safety. Um, they run the Department of Justice's Community in, uh, Burn Criminal Justice Innovation Grant Program. They do all of the technical assistance across the country. So they're really well respected in the safety field. And by working with them, and then you'll see the Alameda County Deputy Sheriff's Activities League, um, that gives Art Place some credibility in actually convening a conversation with people in that field to really understand, okay, what are, what does this sound like to you? We're, we're, we're telling you that artists can play a role in this work, um, in your work. Here's some hypotheses that we found in this field scan. Like, does this does this work for you? What really resonates? What are the projects that speak to you? Who are the key people that we need to convince to start doing this work? And how can you, what kind of evidence, what kind of evaluations do you need to see to actually believe that this work is gonna make an impact in your world? So then with those partners, we uh, convene a working group. Um, so again, this is all, this is what I'm doing for research. We're calling this research um, and it is essentially a sort of slow process to build in input and feedback from these other sectors to help artists start to define how they're working in a way that language-wise works for the public safety folks. So at our working group, this you can see the, the various folks that were there, everyone from research institutions at University of Chicago, uh, PolicyLink, uh, a lot of uniformed officers, um, artists that have been doing this work for a long time, designers that have been doing this work. We actually brought together sort of all levels of practice and thinking around this at the intersection of safety and, and arts. Um, and then the idea and the outcome of that working group is sort of where we are now, which is that they helped us, this process helped us identify sort of areas of public safety work, what you see here, youth violence prevention, hotspot policing, community police relations, and corrections and reentry. Those are sort of things in the safety world that are also things that artists have really been making waves on and impacts on for a long time. So in some senses, I'm just a librarian. We're doing the trend spotting and the matchmaking. But now the devil's in the details is we are actually going to do evaluations of best practices that we've seen with these outcomes and these areas and these priorities in mind. So whereas I'm going to use uh, the corrections re-entry example, there's a project called People's Paper Co-op uh, out of the Village of Arts and Humanities in Philadelphia. Um, an artist named Mark Strandquist uh, came through a fellowship at the village uh, to do specifically um, workshops and um, that involve sort of paper making where formerly incarcerated women and others, their program has grown tremendously, um, as part of their reentry back into this neighborhood where something like 80% of the population is formerly incarcerated, um, there's a, there are paper making workshops where they're actually grinding up their records. They're, they're transforming their records, ripping them up to shreds and making new blank sheets of paper as part of their practice. And they're getting, they're partnered with a legal, legal can't remember the legal partner, but they have a, a, a legal lawyer sort of partner on this work as well that's helping sort of do training and job creation and things like that for these formerly incarcerated women in particular 
that it was the artist's idea to do this work. Now he has these arts partners, he has these legal aid partners, and the, the actual impacts of that work and the sort of symbolism and the sort of artistic, I saw a couple of you take a breath when you sort of realize what that symbolic thing is. Um, what is that? Is that having an impact on recidivism in that neighborhood, which is what the public safety people care about? Would Aviva, who runs the Village of Arts and Humanities, or Mark, have ever actually framed it as having that impact on recidivism? Probably not. So I, I sort of feel like Art Place is walking a fine line. We don't want to tell people what to measure, but we want to make the case and support anyone who wants to be able to make that case in their work. Um, that this is the, this is one way of framing what you're doing and one way of connecting up to it. And so right now, literally in the next couple of weeks, I will be designing the sort of program evaluations with a project and with artists that are doing each of these things. And those will become resources um, both for LISC to deploy and share with their policing audiences that they're providing technical assistance for and for us to be able to share through our networks. I've talked too long, so I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna skip that last. We can get to this in the discussion later. Thanks, Jamie. We're going to quickly just switch uh, presentations here for RuPaul. No, That's OK. That's all right. I'm just going to swap real fast. Jamie, while we're doing this, I just ask a to find that out <laughs> myself. Um, no, I think there's, you know, working with LISC as partners and thinking about, you know, the reason why we had folks like Crime Lab, um, an organization called the Police Foundation, which is not a funder, but actually a training and professional development for law enforcement um, entity, is, you know, sort of saying, what do you, what kinds of data do you need? Like, how are we going to make the, build the evidence through these cases that will convince you that this matters? And one thing that I think I've heard, we've done um, health, safety, and housing, and we're, that was last year, and we're beginning energy, transportation, and immigration right now. And across all of them, everybody says that they're about evidence-based decision-making and about sort of quantitative data, but most people are also relying on qualitative storytelling too. Like, it, you can't separate them. And I think there's, my personal opinion, take it or leave it, um, is that I think there's been such an emphasis on, on quantitative and big data that it's become a bit fetishized. Every single piece of data that you use, it's just a piece of information that you're using to create a narrative. And, and you can create whatever narrative you want from the data. So, I mean, that's it. You, you need it, and you need it to be able to create that narrative. But I think um, pulling up, thinking that quantitative does much without whether it's that spin or that framing, um, I have a hard time with it. But I'm going to talk about Yeah, I'm going to answer that. So, um, all right, so I, first of all, will, um, before I get started with that presentation, just wanted to say that I'm really happy Jamie could come today. Because um, I really, in talking to Jordan about the session, um, 
really wanted to have you guys get the kind of macro level picture of, of how people, how funders and government are investing in placemaking, what they're thinking, and through the punchline for all this is that you guys have a huge role to play um, in order for community development and multiple sectors, I'm going to talk about the health sector, to be effective in our own work. Um, there are so many complex sort of problems, but also really amazing cultural opportunities that I think we're at an exciting time to be able to work together and talk about um, what's possible. So, so that's sort of what this is all about. Um, so, you know, as Jordan said, I uh, run a shop called Health by Design. Um, my background is actually public health, so I come to you from the health sector. And um, I'll just sort of say that our kind of main mandate is to improve population level health, meaning so. Um, while physicians and in medicine, we think about like uh, improving individual health, but improving the health of patients. As a public health researcher, um, we've only done our work and we're only successful if we can actually look at improvements in a community um, defined in many ways. It could be by age, it could be by geography, it could be by cultural group, um, but it is at a certain scale and um, we have to sort of be accountable to that, and that, that's kind of um, the background with which I'm talking. And I'll say that um, sort of from our side, the biggest issues of our time are chronic disease. Um, so public health has done a lot in terms of infectious disease. Um, we still have work to do, but um, 80 to 90 percent of our disease burden and kind of mortality and morbidity is related to chronic disease. And interestingly enough, um, they're very influenced by environmental factors um, and behavioral factors, which means that they're also preventable. Um, and I don't need to tell you all about how much this country is spending on health care costs, uh, but things are not good. Um, and so, you know, from doing what we've been doing in terms of health care services and even public health, we have a limited tool set, right? Like, so we um, have clinical services, we, which are all very important, um, some education services, um, maybe some mass media campaigns, but uh, pharmaceutical drugs, that's kind of our real house. And, but we've also known as researchers for a long time, I mean, David Satcher, Surgeon General under President Clinton, wrote a lot about how health disparities, meaning health outcomes among, between poor and wealthier folks, are so different in this country that we um, have pretty much the worst health outcomes in the industrialized world. So in, in um, 2014, the Institute of Medicine wrote a report comparing our health outcomes in the United States with 16 other industrial countries, and we were dead last across most indicators, which is a little shocking considering that we are the most expensive healthcare system in the world. So of course, that begs the question of like why. So part of it has to do with the huge differences between wealthy and poor, um, but but bottom line, it has to do with not just access to health services, even though that is very important. That only explains like 30% of all these disparities. So like, then the question, and, and sort of that they ask in this report is, um, we know how we live, play, and work is the thing that determines our health outcomes. And so we often, as researchers um, and physicians, are not working with the shapers of our environments, with the placemakers, and connecting that kind of work uh, with outcomes. So, so everybody's talking about it in the health sector, but again, um, we don't necessarily have the methodologies, language, and culture 
um, to, to be working across sectors. And, and that's why this is exciting that we're here, um, but we're, we're starting to do that. And so the a lot of the work I do, um, we work with, all, when I say design, I'm talking about artists also, but um, architects, urban designers, um, and looking at how can the built environment and the way it's designed, how we live, play, and work, how can that influence um, social environment and thereby behavior and ultimately um, how that comes. And we're gonna look through multiple projects uh, so you know what in the world I'm talking about. Um, and when I say health, that that is really broad. Health and well-being, not just sickness and death. And we know that that's very related to social and economic outcomes and ecological outcomes. So they're all interrelated and interdependent. It's hard to talk about one without the others. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work across lots of different sectors and with um, public, public artists like Mary Miss to Arup, an engineering firm, to NYRP. And I think the whole point of telling you this is that I really do think it takes all of our sides and our various methodologies um, to to make progress, and I'll even go further to say my experience in all of this is that um, it's not really dumbing down um, public health and research or um, diluting um, or kind of put a hamstringing creativity for artists. It's sort of saying, how does someone, how do you like, um, how does a design have hold water on the design side and design critique and all of the various considerations of design and art form, beauty, and also all of the science-y, rigorous stuff, that's how we're gonna make progress, right? Like, so it's, it's not just kind of mixing everything together and seeing what happens, but really being rigorous on all of our sides. So these are the kinds of questions, evaluations, ultimately try to ask, and what I work with um, designers and artists to ask. So, you know, what difference can your design, your program, uh, your art, place-making uh, make, to whom and at what scale, like Jane, Jane was just talking about. So it's really um, kind of understanding what, what assumptions you're making, um, what do you think is gonna happen, and this sort of defining your intentional, intentionality. And we have existing methods in social science and public health to answer those questions. So a lot of what our work in Health by Design is, is to overlay existing and accepted scientific methods onto design and artistic processes. So instead of being a clinic-based intervention, um, where, again, it's important, what Jamie was just saying, that a lot of cancer care isn't even evidence-based, right? Like, a lot of the most scientific decisions that we make that affect life and death are not entirely evidence-based. So this takes that into account. Like, how do you weigh existing evidence? How do you take that and make certain decisions? What is credible? And luckily, in science, we do spell all that out. So um, there, there's a way, basically, to build knowledge over time. And um, so I think that that's something we'll talk about in the discussion of how much horsepower do we really, really need here? When do you need quantitative data? And, um, and, and is qualitative data really um, not robust? And, and so the answer is you need both kinds of data and to build knowledge um, and to even use quantitative data and understand what your hypothesis would even be, you need a basis to ask those questions. So it really, all of this is foundational. It builds on itself. So first, just asking what difference could I make uh, with what I'm doing? We review the evidence in existing studies. We talk about a theory of change. 
all of this we can get into like some serious Corey details later on, but I just want to sort of say that there are these existing methods um, that we use essentially positing like how it is, what we're, how we go from what we're doing to the outcome, like just logically, like what, what argument are we making? Um, and then the impact framework um, also helps answer that question, which starts uh, um, also drawing from what people are already measuring, how other fields already talk about impact, um, so that we can kind of uh, use that as a communication tool between fields. Google, yeah. question about that. Are there certain metrics or like, like data that you commonly find that artists are collecting from the project? I mean, even if the projects vary, are there certain things that you know are pretty common metrics or things or pieces of information that you find keep coming up that different groups are collecting? Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, first of all, I think that's the idea, is to move towards um, kind of a shared knowledge base where even if there isn't a perfect metric, like when we were working on an urban agriculture project, I mean, it was this question of like, well, if you weigh, if you talk about pounds of food, some food just weighs more than other food, but if you talk about type of food, then people have a harder time collecting that data. So everybody, as a field, let's just agree on pounds of food, everyone has a scale, and let's just do that. So yeah, I mean, I would say that um, that's where people are trying to move. Um, and it's a good, I think, a good question to ask, like, what are other people already collecting, even if it's not a perfect metric. Um, so you go from saying what you think, what difference you can make, to then asking yourself, well, do we need to now demonstrate that difference? I mean, sometimes it's enough to really have this sort of intentional practice and talk to other people about what it is you're trying to do. And sometimes, you know, again, there needs to be reasons to actually collect data and invest resources in that. And I would say that a huge reason um, to do that would be to actually improve what you're doing um, versus just for funder um, requirements. Because <laughs> and if funders require it, being really aware that um, one makes the case for additional resources because um, it, it, it does, it's a whole other thing to then have to demonstrate the difference that you made. Um, but I would go, I would go as far as to say that this first build, setting yourself up to, to be successful, to review best practices, to articulate what it is you're trying to do, why you think it's going to make a certain difference, um, is like a really important, strong starting point. Then if there's a reason, um, and you have resources, and uh, let's say you're starting some really innovative or new part of your practice, and you weren't, aren't going to continue investing in that or that program unless you knew it was effective, then yes, you then start demonstrating what difference it made. And you do that by um, kind of linking metrics to your impact framework, having an evaluation plan, defining not only metrics, but methodologies. Are you going to use qualitative data, quantitative data? How often are you going to collect that data? Um, are, are there existing sources that like let's say the city or other organizations are already collecting that you could get, and that's what an evaluation plan would help you set up. Um, all of this, is, of course, with that goes without saying, you're co-designing it with communities, with um, existing community-based organizations, um, and 
Yeah, I mean, like, I think a really important point here is only to do this um, in the service of strengthening your program, meaning helping you plan. So you, you could, like, sort of, if you have this feedback loop and you're kind of tracking what's happening, let's just say even participation in the program or community engagement, you can then, um, you know, sort of at mid-course make a correction if you, if you need to do that. Um, so that's sort of program planning standpoint, but then also, of course, you know, in your next year, are you going to design your program differently if some things worked or well um, and some things didn't work? So, can I ask you a question? Yeah. When you guys have artists in residence, do they do you ask them to evaluate their work afterwards, like post their residency, like the outcomes, et cetera, et cetera? And even for you guys for your own work, like how do you kind of take that framework that I was talking about and put it into the context of this. <laughs> Indeed. Um, that's a good question to ask. So I'm here as the ED and Patrick Ramos for me is our director of programs and community engagement and we actually had graduation on Saturday and we're kind of going through the evaluation uh, and actually that was part of our meeting on the train on the way here. Surveys and questions we ask that certainly some of the stuff that's coming up um, here we've learned and, and refined over time, um, as well as our own language about what we're trying to do. So, like I mentioned when I introduced myself earlier, we're moving towards this language of creating um, or nourishing creative community leaders, and those are artists, and those are residents, and those are youth that we do work with, and, and it's our staff and our board, like really trying to. What does that look like in a whole lot of different settings and people we touch and connect to? Um, and we have a series of classes and, and people we kind of work with with our Create Change program, which is where we work with artists, most directors, that's a signature program. So some of what we're, you know, we're looking over the questions this weekend is kind of like, we ask them to do a community-based project. We have several graduates in the room for our programs. Um, what was your method for entering and exit, uh, building and exiting a community? So a lot of it is qualitative, which is a urban uh, um methodology that we have trained with for the last six years. Um, we have our own uh, set of values that we want to see in our work. And how do we begin to account for that? It's, it's definitely an area of growth, and we're actually working with an evaluator this fall to kind of help us, again, take another level of really refining that and answering our own questions about exactly what we're looking for, because it's like one of those, like, I spot it when I see it. Yeah. Um, a lot of our work is about long-term ripple effects, so now that we're 10 years old, we have an opportunity to go, oh, that's what we're going to And capturing some of that, so we want to do an impact study that captures that. So we're at a moment where we're looking back at that. Again, why I wanted to be here, right? Like, so a lot of this resonates, a lot of it's like, oh, okay, I should think about that. So it's, it's a kind of a mix of things. But we definitely always had evaluation as part of it, but we're getting better at even figuring out what that means. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think that there's two sort of main pieces to think about. There's 
institutional learning and the way in which organizations learn about what they're doing. So often evaluation is called that. It's like it's about institutional uh, knowledge or learning and how you learn over time and build a foundation for learning, how you then build a field around that, talking to other organizations, institutions, funders, um, and then how you sort of invest in that. But then a huge piece of this, of course, is accountability to communities. So all of us have a social justice mission, but then in the end, you know, what did we do, and how do we know that things did improve for the community, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the last thing I'll sort of say about qualitative versus quantitative, just keep in mind um, that they answer different kinds of questions. So they're, they're not only both important, they're both essential to, um, it, it, depending on what kinds of questions you're asking. And um, yeah, I'll sort of stop there about that. And then, so ultimately, once you sort of go through this process with your own project, your own institution, whatever scale it is you're asking these questions on, then you can come up with best practices and you can start thinking about scale. It's not automatic. I mean, then you ask the question of, is this generalizable? Like, can you just, you cannot obviously just take a project and translate it to some other geography, but how do you understand what learning you could extrapolate um, to some other community or whatever? Um, but that's like a whole other step with its own set of methods. Um, so I just want to sort of share with you on the ground kind of like how this ends up looking like with different kinds of collaborators. So this is um, some, Brian Phillips is someone I collaborate with quite a bit. He's an urban designer and um, architect in Philadelphia. He builds supportive housing and housing and thinks, so he, we met at a conference and he was like, you know, I think a lot about the performance of buildings, but you know, I happened to be speaking there and talked about the performance of buildings and um, at the level of a community, right? And so, and not necessarily even one building, but how buildings can talk to each other. Um, and architects already think about that, but they're not, and they're also already thinking about performance, um, like energy efficiency and things like that, but they're not necessarily, even though they're designing for people, they're not necessarily then making the next connection. And at the same time, in public health, we are looking theoretically at these populations, but we have no idea what a site needs to be able to do to perform at the level of the community. So this is how we sort of started this conversation about outcomes-based design, and and sort of said like, what if a park and and you know design of a park that fosters social connection? So social connection is an outcome that we know is a major driver for different kinds of health outcomes, and that's something that designers can actually influence. Um, what if you know elderly housing could prevent avoidable hospitalization? Again, a huge cost issue in the health sector. And what if food retail and the way we design it and think about um, you know, the user experience of food retail could actually promote healthy eating and food access among underserved populations? So I'll just quickly take you through um, kind of uh, how our tools kind of talk to each other. So. In public health and social science, we we're thinking about impact, and this framework really came from the community. So, the Cypress Hills Community Development Corporation, East New York, some of you might know, um, very community driven, where they, health is a big priority for them. And the Community Development Corporation came to Brian and I saying, okay, we know health is a big priority, but we do supportive housing and place making. How do we translate that to impact, and how do we talk about it? 
Um, so these are the areas of impact the community was interested in, culture, economic impact, health, food, access, safety, and ecological impact. Um, and then how do we start looking at existing factors in social science or predictors of that kind of impact? Um, and then once we do that and define what are predictors of all these different kinds of impacts, how do we start sort of understanding the relationship between design decision making or place making decisions? Um, so if we know that community engagement can lead to social connection, and we know social connection is related to um, social capital and, and uh, trust and um, ultimately safety and social cohesion, all of these things that we know are important for our longer term impacts, um, how do we then translate that into spatial decisions? So like going from research to um, sort of creative decisions. Um, no. So, and then of course, it, you know, ends up in the built environment. Um, this was another example in thinking about um, it was a supportive housing for post-prison population and thinking about how different populations, post-prison population, emergency homeless population, and other sort of folks, including providers, were all going to interact together and move through a building um, and thinking about social systems as well as water systems and, um, and then siting and all these other things that architects think about. Um, but what we, what we did sort of bringing the social science design decisions was saying, we know that these different populations in the same space have these different needs. And um, as you can see here, um, looking at what we in public health call a population-specific approach. Um, so one size does not fit all, but if you only have one building, how do you accommodate all these multiple different needs and map that onto an axon drawing. <laughs> so, so it takes, you know, like it takes all of us working together and, and literally that's what we sort of did. So he and I worked together with enterprise community partners and this is getting a little, getting a little bit more into talking about affordable housing and architecture, but I think there's important parallels with, because um, it is part of placemaking um, and activating spaces. Um, we were, um, did a design studio, enterprise community partners, I don't know if you know who they are, they're underwriters of affordable housing, and um, they commissioned a studio for Brian and I to work with um, their fellows who were working across different scales. So these are embedded architects and designers in community development corporations working on anything from a master plan to a actual interior space to um, a, a building uh, for elderly um, housing. So, so this gets back to the questions that Jamie was talking about. So it's this kind of like same method that you sort of process of asking yourself questions, regardless of the scale of the project. Um, what what is the population um, and the focus? And some sometimes there are already kind of existing parameters. Like you're already working with an organization that serves elderly populations, so you don't you're not picking that, but it's given to you. There's some givens. What, what are the kinds of changes your, or like improvements and benefits you're trying to advance? And then what are your kind of placemaking design strategies? And then like how are you gonna know that you did that? So this book is coming out shortly and uh, I can, I can uh, make sure that Jordan lets you know, I think Enterprise wants it to be a resource for folks 
kind of doing exactly this and, and coming together um, with multiple different sectors and teams to um, define the population. Like you're already, again, based on who your partners are, the team, the project, the, what the community engagement process tells you, the, process, the, the population um, or the focus of your project will be defined. Um, and then when you're thinking about change, you're also thinking about, of course, scale. You develop really specific objectives and define the site and your program in order to uh, talk about the kind of change you want to create. Um, and then you get really specific about what it is you're going to do to create that change. Um, I won't get too far into this, but um, the benefits of working across disciplines is also I'm sort of showing you everything after the fact, like it's all neat and tied up into a bow. But um, really, the process of this was like looking at different trade-offs, like my tools and impact frameworks, talking to Brian's kind of more creative process to say, hey, on this site, there's like five different things we could do. And so like, what if we did, if we made this big move, what would that be? What would that look like in terms of impact? Well, I could tell you that, but I can't tell you what the moves would be. So like, then we went back and forth to say, all right, and with the community, it's either this or that, because the physical site is, is there's only like, you can't do everything on the physical site. So anyway, all that to say that it, it is iterative and, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about how um, the whole point for me, um, I mean, other than it's really fun to work with very creative people, um, there is no way we're going to actually advance outcomes without um, designers and artists. I mean, we, we cannot, I mean, that sort of mining creativity and optimizing the predictors, like we know what the predictors are, but we can't optimize them without very creative solutions. Um, so I'll talk more about kind of what those connections are, but, um, and then measuring impact. I'll show you kind of how we did that. So this was a project in Boston, the Jewish community housing for the elderly, where quite a big population, um, just to sort of say, there was initial design research to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what is this existing condition, both site condition, but also socially? Like, what do we know about seniors and, um, you know, people basically want to remain in their home, what are their age groups, what's the traditional model versus what this organization is trying to do, um, who's the team, and it's obviously interdisciplinary. Um, and just, I'm going to go through this a little bit quickly, um, really kind of getting very specific about the populations. And again, this isn't to become nitpicky or be, um, create great agony among creative people, but it's sort of to say that, um, the more specific we can get, the more we're going to actually learn in our practice. And I, Brian and I actually teach a design studio together, and a lot of our students are like, okay, this is really hampering my creative process. And so we'll often say, then don't do it. You know, I mean, but if you want to know the answer to the question, like how can you improve what, how can you make sure you're improving impact, or you can say something about your impact, these are methods you could deploy. I mean, you could definitely be an artist where your intention is to do certain things, but you've just decided that you're not going to try to talk about that um, and you want to keep doing whatever you're doing. That's fine too. Um, but this is just to say that the more specific you can get, the better in terms of making your case uh, credibly. Um, so I'll just go through this. So then essentially we go from uh, 
these kind of big moves and mapping them to different um, predictors and factors. Um, and then we kind of extrapolate that out using the evidence base and working with researchers to say, all right, if we can address um, social connection, then we, have, we know from studies that that will do these other things. Um, and one of the things that I sort of, the slide that's missing that's really important here is a huge light bulb that went off um, for me is that in working with researchers and um, thinking about outcomes, we're really relying on what we understand as the predictors of outcomes. So like, let's just say um, we want to reduce obesity. We know that physical activity, if people are more physically active, we can reduce obesity. But we don't know what kind of environments and conditions are going to like inspire people to be physically active. So what we, Brian and I have sort of realized is that a lot of these environmental factors and things that are predictors to researchers are actually experiences you guys can design for. You can shape them, you can optimize them, you can make them compelling, you can make them beautiful, and therefore effective and more likely to produce outcomes. So I'm going to stop there because um, <laughs> I feel like this is a lot of information. Um, yeah, so questions? Uh, it, it's a good, um, go ahead. I was just going to ask, where do you have your design class? Uh, it's at Parsons. I mean, we're not teaching this year, but yeah. Yeah, in their transdisciplinary design program. It's transdisciplinary design. Transdisciplinary design. Yeah, so they're defining it by sort of saying that um, it's not interdisciplinary, as in working uh, like to kind of integrate disciplines, um, where you have to have like everybody, all these different disciplines at the table, and you're like in your um, silo talking just from your place, but you're actually um, kind of it's like this other thing where you're coming together uh, and translating and creating your own language to be able to leverage your own um, skills of the different disciplines. Transcending. Transcending. like a whole field of art and art therapy and 
all that. It's um, not therapy per se. That's the oh, okay. Like, it's not really so find one of the things that I, I mentioned, you know, why we're not actually just looking at creative placemaking when we're looking at this intersection of arts and health, you know, as I'm taking this um, you know, segmented dive, is that a lot of, so health is one example where there's a long history of not therapy necessarily, but individual impacts of the arts on individuals' health. Um, and same thing in safety, in sort of the correctional setting. There's a lot of look at sort of behavioral health and, and, and sort of self-efficacy and things that the arts have helped somebody do as an individual. Um, but there is not a lot of research about the social or systemic or community scale impacts. So scaling that stuff up. So, I mean, some people will talk about, I mean, for me, coming from the design field, understanding the emergence of the public health field coming out of medicine and why and what that shift meant, that design and arts are actually kind of going through that as well right now in terms of their own scaling up and understanding their role in relationship to community and social, like communities at scale and social impacts. So I'm not, I'm not actually answering your question. There are, there are organizations like um, RxArt and others that are sort of providing input and a part of our field scans and understanding sort of the longer history of this intersection. But in terms of our frame of what creative placemaking is, they don't always make it in unless we're talking about community impacts. Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything specifically from that? I'm not trying to say that forcible, when you the art that was being made, the paper that was being like. We haven't started that evaluation yet. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're going to start at the end of this year, beginning of next year. Yeah, it's, I mean, there, there's a website. You can look it up. People's Paper Co-op. People's Paper Co-op? Yep. We haven't done any yet, so. <laughs> um, but all of the field scans are made public. Yep, they're on our website, and um, there's two. I, I said we've, there are two that are published: uh, the health. I'm sorry, the safety and the housing, affordable housing and safety. Um, and then health will be up by the end of this year, um, and then by next year we'll have four more. Um, and so it's sort of a iterative process of doing those. Um, my caveat is that those are intended, and I'm not apologizing for them, but they're they're a first step towards more refined evaluations and understandings of evidence that those are helping us get to that and start that conversation. So um, there will be more to come in both of those that are already up there. But James, um, are you involved in all the, the national grant and how they evaluate each of those projects at our place or is that completely separate from what you do? I guess I sit in the room. Oh, well, um, as I understand it, I think Javier um, there's the freedom of each of these persons who's proposing a project to actually create their own evaluation framework. Yes. So it's very individualized to like they have to set up their, their goals, whatever, mm -hmm. their outcomes of the project. So I was just wondering if you are if you are involved in reviewing that framework. We have a panel. I mean, there's a panel of outside reviewers, so 12, 13 people every year do it, and there's always one person on staff that is a reviewer. Last year I was that person, not this year. Um, so it's not, it's not me and my research role evaluating 
the research agendas of each grantee or applicant, um, but in terms of institutionally, we as a team in sort of shifting how and what we ask in our application process, that was a collaborative effort of getting to the point of saying how do we want grantees or applicants to be thinking about evaluation. Um, and I would say bigger picture, something I didn't say but Rupal mentioned um, and it made me think of it is that our goal, you know, who you're doing an evaluation for is a really critical fundamental thing. If you're doing it for yourself to understand your work or if you're doing it to be able to communicate to a funder or to communicate to a mayor or to communicate to part, you know, there's a lot of different and actually starting with that is really critical. The thing that I think ArtPlace is in a position to do relative to the um, to our portfolio of projects that we've supported and do have, like I have access to people that are doing really interesting evaluations, is actually start to mine and survey and share those methodologies with others that are doing this work. So, um, you know, whereas on one hand, I'm trying to create a sort of menu of metrics that, you know, if you are doing work in public health, here are some things that public health people measure and how they do it. If you're doing work in safety, here are some things, you know, we're actually trying to just make um, new frameworks and possible metrics available to people, but we also can do a survey and intend to be doing a survey and so people can share with each other in a peer learning sort of way um, who's doing what and how from an evaluation standpoint. So the next question you want to answer was off the top of your head, if you recall any Yeah. It's not from, I, I, wouldn't, I would never get it from an application. I'll say that first, because the work hasn't happened yet. So they're not, you know, in terms of that innovation, I, I will be the first to champion and sort of push the idea that artists themselves have a role, have a role to play in redefining evaluation and how it's done. Um, that's something that some colleagues at ASU are beginning to think about. Uh, I think they're calling it the Creative Measurement Lab um, and getting artists involved in um, how to measure. Uh, there's a group, Community Music Works, out of Rhode Island, out of Providence, that are doing some interesting, um, I don't want to say social network mapping, but they're doing qualitative surveys and they're actually understanding neighborhood, um, they're having people draw their map of their neighborhood and how it's changed and whether they've gone to new places or they've crossed certain boundaries or borders in a way. So it's sort of looking at um, uh, physical uh, crossing of sort of former borders and territories within neighborhoods and seeing whether the work that they're doing is actually impacting people's both perception of where their neighborhood boundaries are and actually literally where they've gone if they've gone to new and different places. That's a pretty, I mean, that's, that is them working with some like traditional audience research people to actually think in a new way how to ask community members if they're actually behaving differently after this work. That's one that comes to mind. I think you know, another end of the spectrum. I don't know enough about it because I think it's just been released, but um, in the Twin Cities in, in uh, Minnesota, um, I'm gonna mess up and say the theater name wrong, but 
Pillsbury House, yeah, where they're projecting the data, they're projecting some of the data um, and having artists do visualizations of things that are happening in the community and resulting from their programs onto the outside of the theater to be communicating these changes with the community. Sounds like I'm even more about it. But, and I know they worked with Metro's Arts Consulting, a woman named Anne, uh, Anne Godwin Nicodemus, to sort of think through some of the formal methodological stuff and then with artists to actually think about how to communicate it and share it and use it in new ways. Maybe just to like dig a little deeper into that because I feel like um, you know, we've talked a lot about project evaluation and things like that, but I think one of the there are risky aspects to, to this way of working, right? And, and one of the real risks um, is that change and new projects lead to gentrification and displacement and things like that, um, which I, I think is kind of a known risk in this in this way of working. And so, what are some strategies? Um, to account for things that are, are driven maybe by larger forces, um, but that have impact on the arenas in which projects are taking place and the you know subsequent out outcomes and impacts on the people who interface with them. I mean, I, there's a project that I'm working on in the Bronx with New York Restoration Project, which is um, a, a huge public realm project, and so one of so I guess there's two answers, or two parts of the answer. Um, one is, if you anticipate that there could be, there's certain risks um, related to what you're doing, which could be, I mean, that happens all the time. There's risks um, and, and potential adverse effects that you can imagine could happen. Then you, you know, owe it to yourself and the community you're working with to, to really talk about how you're gonna address some of those risks. So for example, Gentrification is always a risk with a lot of these things. And um, one of the things we talked about with uh, this project in the Bronx, which is an open space development, is how do we ensure access and um, that people feel that the park and green space um, there is for them and, and not for these sort of new populations. And, and there's multiple aspects to that that have to do with design and placemaking, but also policing. So, you know, we're also gonna work with those folks and just sort of thinking about, now that, that's not gonna stop all the forces of gentrification, but there are things we can do um, if we have anticipated some of the risks. Um, and that's just And I would say to build on that, that part of the automatic association between creative placemaking and gentrification is due to the sort of single-minded theory of change that it's about economic development. And um, something that I often, you know, it's, I think a lot of unfair um, emphasis has been placed on the role of artists in much broader systems that are, you know, policies and uh, market systems that are contributing to change that is not all the artist's fault because that artist did that project, right? So just to bring some levity to the reality of the complex systems that communities are, not to dismiss the question at all, I think, but I, I do think sort of for me, one of the, so at the 30,000 foot view, first to say getting past 
economic development as the be-all end-all community change, right? Um, or, or actually redefining and remembering that there's good economic, there's different philosophies of economic development. <laughs> um, and there's very top-down methods, there's very sort of one-note methods, and then there's very complicated, slow methods of economic development that if you attach yourself to the right community development partner that is really sophisticated about what that looks like and how to you know, simultaneously be working on workforce development, simultaneously be investing in community partners in different ways, that I think that has to do with sort of aligning with the right partners that have the same values of you as, uh, values as you about the type of community development that you're doing. So, um, so I, I, I tend to respond, I tend to want to unpack the larger sort of assumption that creative placemaking equals gentrification because it's usually bad economic development strategies equal gentrification and often and historically um, artists can get used uh, in that way uh, and I think that's something to be careful of. Yeah, actually, I have some questions about, you know, metrics and all stuff. Um, yeah, we all are pretty aware that corporations pretty much have a real, sometimes a strong hold on what type of information is released, what type of, you know, research is allowed to be, you know, and so much of the health issues, like, you know, you go in and you cause a problem and then you charge someone for the solution, you know, the remedy, which is so much of like, what's going on. And then just, you know, this consumer loop where, like, corporations are controlling everything and then agribusiness and, you know, like, over and over and every single, you know, lobby and every single. Um, so, like, getting the information out there, like, that's not going to serve these corporate, you know, entities and these sort of, so what is it about like what you guys do that combats that whole thing? Because like they're giving you their dollars, so they don't necessarily want they don't they really want their interests protected in that fashion. And it depends on where the money's coming out Is that a bad question? Or is that clear? I am not exactly Yeah, sure. no, I mean I, I think that I mean, you're talking a little bit at least about the accountability aspects to communities. Um, I mean, I mean, a lot of public health funding is government or philanthropy, although yeah. you could argue certainly that that's not disconnected from corporate, you know, uh, cap capitalism. Um, not, nothing is entirely separate, but I, I think that this kind of methodology as, and I think the communications piece of like how is information communicated to communities in a way that's legible and accessible is an important part of having communities also hold all of us accountable. So it's one thing for you know a project to talk about all the positive things it's going to do for the community, but it's you know another thing for the community to be able to monitor that. And um, so I think being able to make metrics accessible, but also not putting the whole onus on the community to then become social scientists, I think uh, is important. And then getting, I just want one comment about metrics and methodology. Um, I think it's just important from the artist and creative side, um, I, don't, I don't feel like my message is that everybody should turn into an evaluator or social scientist. Um, and I think it's important on the side of social science and policy making, and at least in health, of like what is credible information. Like it doesn't make sense for people to be collecting data and, and then presenting conclusions that won't seem um, 
credible to people making decisions or whether they're funding decisions or policy decisions or whatnot. So I think um, at the minimum, from my perspective, I think for designers and artists and placemakers to have a literacy around what are we talking about, how do we come together, and number one, like from your side, really documenting what you're doing. That's where I feel like things are missing. So uh, someone like me can't really help figure out what outcomes we can influence if, if we don't really know what you did, right? Often it's, it's there are a lot of moving parts, and you are moving quickly and trying to respond to community need. Um, so let us, the metrics, technical people help you figure it out, but we have to know like what you did, when you did it, why you did it, stuff like that. And the methods that you outlined in the PowerPoint are awesome, by the way. Like, and you said those are being published in a book. What was the name of the book again? It's called Design for Impact. For, for impact. Um, and I'll send Jordan the link that he can send out. And it's it's published by Enterprise Community Partners. So, so Rupal, well, I want to and Jamie, thank yeah. you both so much for presenting on your work. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I want to just tie it back a little bit more, very tangibly, to suggestions that you all have for how artists and designers can start to think about their impact and start to ask the right, right, whatever the right questions are, but can start to ask questions that take a look at their impact and. And just how do we start it on this road towards evaluation? What's your suggestion for the artisan? I, I mean, that's why I come back to this, that word intentionality or goals. I mean, just, I mean, that might be the most obvious thing to say, but I don't know that every, I mean, I think about my own creative self and, and often you're doing it because you don't want to have an intentionality or goals, right? And so, you know, just to be, as you said, the one designers have been saying it's cramping my creative process. If you actually are seeking to do social impact work, you have to start with goals um, and some intentionality. And I think sort of forcing a little bit of that rigor on yourself um, for this kind of work is a necessary starting point, um, just at its most basic. And then, I mean, I would say um, that, like, so for example, from our side, we're looking, so we know that if we can create certain kinds of experiences, we're going to change outcomes. So I'm, I'm not even sure you guys need to think too much about the outcome side, because when I work with designers, often they're kind of like social capital, like we don't even know what that means or whatever, but we do know how to like think about a public plaza and social interaction and social connection and things like that. So um, I guess, from the intentionality side, I think that the intention is to create a certain kind of experience, but the options and how you do that, I think, mines your creativity. So there, it's not about a checklist or, or something like that. Um, and I definitely have had design students, like I've said, who, who want to just do their thing and they don't want to think about what, how it's going to perform. And, and what I say to them often is, okay, do your thing, and we need your thing to change outcomes, but do it and then locate yourself in some kind of context then. So at least you're aware that there is a context to locate your work in. Um, then whatever process you have for making your stuff, make it, but then try to make those connections back. When I started working with Google a few years ago, she came in and she asked me, so what are you already measuring? And I was like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. She said, what are you, what, you gotta be collecting something. You're doing work, and what we're doing at the time was, 
producing events in outdoor spaces. And I was pretty happy just doing that. And so when she started asking these questions, kind of made my head explode. But what it ended up boiling down to was, well, we were collecting things. We were collecting how many people come to each workshop. We were collecting zip codes for where people were coming from. We were collecting names, email addresses. So we already were collecting some very simple information that was a foundation to evaluate so not even know it existed. So sometimes you might already, you might already right now be asking the right questions or questions that will move you towards yes. being able to measure your impact and you don't even know it. Yes. So we've talked very high level on some of these things, but realize it can be just as simple as starting tomorrow, taking account of everybody who comes to your event or whatever it is, whatever you can start to measure and group. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And that was my experience, that was my door into evaluation, which was like, I don't know what this is, I don't really want any part of it. And she was like, too bad because you're already doing it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep doing it. And it just turned out to be a really educational experience, but very, uh, in, it's, it's impacted my work and changed my work very fast. And that's a perfect segue. There's a, the sort of often misattributed quote to Einstein, not everything that can be counted counts, not everything that can be, not everything that counts can be counted. Um, and so I don't know actually who said it, it was not Einstein, um, but, but that, so don't just measure things because you think you need to be measuring things. That, I mean, so yes, and with the caveat, like just because it's easy to count doesn't mean it's relevant to what you're setting out to do, right? Don't just try to count something because it's easy. Um, the, for me, the, a, a really great story was um, I worked uh, briefly on Governor's Island here in New York uh, with, and Leslie Koch, who runs that. Um, talked a lot about sort of the sort of her goals were about you know having Governor's Island get on the map, the mental map of New Yorkers. Like it went from being not literally not on the map to like becoming a place that people knew they could come to and were welcome to. And this was also happening during the sort of emergence of the High Line, another massive public space reinvestment. Um, and High Line was seeing you know numbers off the charts from all over the world, you know huge tourist destination. And so Governor's Island has a ferry; you have to get on a ferry to get there. And so in terms of really trying to convey both to her funders, to the city and to the public, um, you know, she was like, well, what, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna beat the high line in terms of numbers, numbers of people that are coming here. But I actually have to demonstrate that people love this place. How do I do that? And so it was sort of like, what's my goal? What am I trying to say? And she was like, if you love a place, you spend more time there. So they actually started measuring how long people stayed so understanding when certain people, and they were surveying and asking when people got off the boat and paying attention and asked them to let them know when they were leaving. So they, they designed the sort of measure of how long somebody was staying with an eye towards what they need, what the case was that they needed to make. So it's a very, and they weren't social scientists, they were not researchers, it was not a form, but this was sort of just like a strategic thing to say like, how do we actually get to what we want to know about and how do we actually make that case? We don't know until we start asking. We don't know for a fact that people are staying here for a long time, but we suspect that that's one way to do it. So let's let's try that. I just, I just have a comment about Governor's Island because I did um, four years of sculpture work through Figment there, and the more the numbers of the people increased, the higher the insurance costs went, and now our program is gone because of the insurance costs. So basically, and of course, the other side of the island is now um, designed and it's become a destination itself. So what happens is, is that you end up, 
it, it sort of shifts the uh, type of artist or design um, designer who's uh, able to actually continue working the more that's a much bigger political conversation. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just yeah. I experienced it not yeah. just there, but all it, I've experienced it a number of times because, and, and um, it's not only a one-time thing. It, it, it's always, I guess it's a gentrification type thing where it's a risk. the success that makes the, per, the, the artists who actually um, begin the process and they become isolated out of the process. I was just curious if you've um, done any research on that. Or I mean, I would say have, specific to Governor's Island, no, I think, um, you know, the Soho effect, you know, some of the creative class research that's been done for a couple decades about, you know, artists are the ones that move in and pioneer and, you know, create a new place um, and then it gentrifies and then they can't work with there anymore. There's a lot of studies on that. Um, so it's not a direct a direct parallel, but right, it's right. Well, the same important. thing with, like, with Governor's Island, I know that's exactly what happened, is that the, the price for insurance went up so much that the artists were no longer able, they couldn't run the program anymore for the artists to actually engage in, in the space. One of the other things that um, common Governor, Governor's Island brings up in thinking about certainly our approach around this is in the end, your own, I'm an organization, so we have a mission, so I know that's not necessarily the case for each artist. It's not how you're framing, how you approach your, your projects necessarily, but um, when we're trying to think about how we are, are moving towards evaluation that has meaning for us um, and is driven by our needs, it really is about kind of looking at what are the words that matter in our mission? So we're, you know, interconnected communities, resilient communities, creative community leaders, we have seven values. Like that's the stuff I want to keep circling back to when you say something like, it wasn't how many people, but how long they stayed. Um, we have a two-bedroom apartment that we're activating as a creative community hub in the South Bronx, and that's part of what I'm interested in, right? We're never gonna have high numbers. It's a two-bedroom apartment. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a different kind of thing. It's about death, not breath. So some of it is being able to tell that story with some getting to a point to be able to tell that story with as much um, uh, confidence as possible is what I'm actually aiming to do. So that even if I'm not able to say, look, we do not have a thousand people because that's just not what this program is. But here's what we have, and this is why this matters in a different way. And being able to point that out in a narrative is kind of what I'm aiming for. I'm kind of curious whether that comes up for people. Like, is that how people are kind of tying back? And then you mentioned several times how uh, evaluation is like completely revolutionized <laughs> your your life and approach. I'd love an example of what that means. So you started off by counting people, and I'm assuming you've moved to something else. Well, yeah, I think with several iterations of the same kind of just thinking, I wasn't thinking about it yeah. in this structure at all. I was just producing events and wanting people to come and wanting more people to come, and it was a very elementary way of thinking. And then I started to realize, well, if I, if I, just make, if I want more people to come, I need to change something about what I'm doing to get more people to come. And I had a whole team, not just me, I'm paraphrasing. 
But like, with each iteration of that, we kept learning new things. And things that probably seem obvious to a lot of people here, like there's power in numbers. So the more that we combine resources, the more that we can, like the greater our strength is, the more our outreach strategy is, the more people come to our gardens, the parks, and realize that it's a space that they can invest in. It also, and this was a dangerous kind of pocket that I, I really enjoyed when I was working on this with Google, which was, it also illuminated a lot of inefficiencies in the company I was working with, which is dangerous because nobody wants to know that they're not doing things well. And that's generalizing, but certainly organizations aren't looking for a ton of criticism. And by evaluating, I was, in, I was very quickly turned on to like, oh, well if like our marketing department did a little bit more, then maybe more people would know about it and that would bring more people to our spaces as well. And it just started to really kind of open up the door and bring the light into the work I had been doing and gave it a definition. And like fast forward three years to this moment in time, like now I have a robust, I, I'm working in greater numbers, I'm working with more groups because I realized that my objectives, my points of impact, what I'm hoping to achieve, overlap with the same one that the laundromat product is trying for, or that the Bronx Botanical Garden is trying for. And so then we start to align our programmatic strategies together, and then we're getting to those results that we want a little bit more quickly, a little bit more efficiently. Um, and it started with just 10 people coming and 15 people coming. And, you know, it takes years, and, but for me, it's taken years to get there, but it's been very simple turns, but that have really, Changed the impact, and, and like on a very personal note, it took me from just being the person who was producing events to the person who was thinking, "Oh, this work I'm doing in East New York, it has real implications for people. So maybe I should have some respect for that, and like make sure that my work is authentic and has the best intention that it possibly can." So it's I, I'm happy to talk a lot about that offline of this, but I mean those are just a, a few ways that immediately. Really important in my practice. I unless there is another burning question that would be best um, for the group conversation, nobody's jumping out of their seats. You all have been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this. Rupal, Jamie, thank you so much for bringing your expertise to the group. This is our final presentation, so it's it's kind of bittersweet, but the best part is, is you can keep talking about creative placement when you go back to your organizations, when you see somebody tomorrow that needs to know this information. So we hope you'll continue spreading the word. And in, and in this great theme of evaluation, um, please be on the lookout for a survey coming to <laughs> Because we like to know what worked and what didn't. And it helps us, it helps Q and, and all of us just do our work a little bit better because we need the best kind of resources. So thank you again for being with Thank you to Q, Shona, Eva, Karina. Thank you for having us. And, and all of you. And, uh, have a great night. Thank you. Thank you.